0: Welcome to the Setting the Scene podcast, a history podcast about the places featured in famous works of literature and entertainment. I'm your host, Mark Wright. This is Episode 2, Dracula's Transylvania. Before I begin the second episode, let me issue a small correction from Episode 1 on Romeo and Juliet's Verona. In that episode, I refer to Marcuccio as Shakespeare's friend. Of course, he's Romeo's friend, so sorry about that slip of the tongue. Also, I wanted to let you know about one theory of the origins of Romeo and Juliet. I omitted it from the episode of the podcast, uh, and here's why. Some scholars look at one of Shakespeare's patrons as a possible inspiration for the play, and it seems this nobleman wed in secret when the queen refused to bless his union. I didn't include this theory because we have no direct knowledge about what Shakespeare knew of his patron's situation, much less what he thought about it. It's a bit of a stretch to resume this love affair played into the events of the play, especially given that the plot was largely lifted from earlier works. So with that said, let's turn our attention to a new episode and new setting. We kept on ascending, with occasional periods of quick descent, but in the main always ascending. Suddenly, I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the sky. This quote from the diary of Jonathan Harker welcomes us to one of the spookiest settings in all of fiction, Dracula's Castle. And even without this passage, you already had an image of Dracula's Castle in your mind. And you've probably had an image in your head since a very young age, because thanks to Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, and all the movies and cartoons and other media portrayal it spawned. This foreboding castle on a jagged mountain in the land of vampires, werewolves, and other children of the night is as familiar as any setting we know of. The place where this sinister castle is located today is synonymous with the horror genre itself, Transylvania. As the infamous Count Dracula tells Harker, We are in Transylvania. And Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways. And there shall be to you many strange things. Nay, from what you have told me of your experiences already, you know something of what strange things there may be. So where and what is this place full of strange things? Well, for starters, Transylvania is a Latin place name, meaning the land beyond the forest. Today, Transylvania is in a region in central Romania, in the eastern range of the Carpathian Mountains. But for a more than 40-year period prior to the First World War, Transylvania was part of the mighty Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in Bram Stoker's time, it was ethnically diverse, made up of largely a population of ethnic Romanians, who comprised about 60% of the people. There was also a significant minority of Hungarians, about 30% a small but not insignificant population of German Saxons, about 10%, and very small, small numbers of other groups, mainly Romani, or Gypsies, and Turks and Greeks. For some reason, Stoker gets these demographics wrong, emphasizing the Hungarians and Saxons and Gypsies, and all but leaving out the Romanians themselves. And this is strange, Uh, the Romanians were the majority of the population. They spoke a Romance language and traced their lineage to multiple groups, including the Romans themselves and tribal groups like the Dacians, who may be closely related to the Thracians of northern Greece. But Stoker at least recognized that it was a diverse population and not just a homogenous group. Now when it comes to the lay of the land, the demographics of the place, and its many and varied customs, Stoker relied on what he had read in the British Museum and at libraries across England. That is to say, Stoker never visited Transylvania. Stoker scholar Christopher Frayling contends that Stoker never traveled east of Whitby on the northeast coast of England. Frayling has since corrected himself, noting that technically London is farther east than Whitby, but Whitby is a coastal village, so you get the idea. Stoker never made it east of the British Isles. Indeed, Stoker was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland. He worked in a bureaucratic job there and honed his writing skills as a theater critic for a newspaper. He relocated to London in 1878 with his actress wife, Florence Balcombe, and became the business manager for actor Henry Irving and his Lyceum Theater. Irving was one of the most renowned actors of his day, and there's a general belief that Stoker created Dracula as a novel that could be easily adapted to the stage, where of course Irving could take on the lead role. I'll get back to how Stoker came up with his baddie, the ultimate undead villain of all time, in a bit. But first I want to explain how an Anglo-Irish writer in the very seat of 19th century Western culture hones in on the misty Carpathian Mountains. In a very remote part of Central Europe as the setting of his gothic horror. Now, Vampire stories weren't invented in Romania, and Stoker didn't invent vampire stories. These ghoulish figures were already familiar to audiences in England and across the continent. That is to say, you could just as easily set a vampire story in the rugged highlands of Scotland, the idyllic countryside of Austria, or the crowded streets of London, as you could in remote Transylvania. And indeed, Dracula begins in Transylvania before shifting scenes to Victorian England. And that shift in scenes shows you the kind of contrast in cultures Stoker may have been going for. This teeming hub, this technologically advanced, rational, modern London, versus this backwater of rustic, superstitious, old world ideas that was embodied by Transylvania. As Stoker's protagonist, Harker, notes, I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. Very interesting stay. Hm. <laughs> Turns out that was a massive understatement, wasn't it? Harker found himself the captive of the vampire count and his undead harem of lady vampires, which all sounds awfully fantastical. It's about as fantastical as the travel writings of Emily Gerard, whom Stoker, Stoker almost certainly read and was influenced by. Her essay, Transylvanian Superstitions, was published in 1885, and it plays up on those British notions of the otherness of Transylvania. I'm going to read aloud Gerard's full essay because I think it gives you a striking insight into a Londoner's perceptions of the mysterious Transylvania. But nowhere does the inherent superstition of the Romanian peasant find stronger expression than in his mourning and funeral ceremonies, which are based upon a totally original conception of death. Among the various omens of approaching death are the ungrounded barking of a dog, or the crowing of a black hen. The influence of the latter may, however, be annulled, and the catastrophe averted, if the bird be put in a sack and carried thrice round the house. Roots dug up from the churchyard on Good Friday are to be given to people in danger of death. If, however, this and other remedies fail to save the doomed man, then he must have a burning candle put into his hand. For it is considered to be the greatest of all misfortunes if a man die without a candle, a favour the Romanian durst not refuse to his most deadly enemy. The corpse must be washed immediately after death, and the dirt, if necessary, scraped off with knives, because the dead man is more likely to find favor with God if he appear before him in a clean state. Then he is attired in his best clothes, in doing which great care must be taken not to tie anything in a knot, for that would disturb his rest. Likewise, he must not be allowed to carry away any particle of iron about his dress, such as buttons, boot-nails, etc., FOR THIS WOULD ASSUREDLY PREVENT HIM FROM REACHING PARADISE, THE ROAD TO WHICH IS LONG, AND IS moreover DIVIDED OFF BY SEVERAL TOLLS, OR FAIRIES, SHE CONTINUES, TO ENABLE THE SOUL TO PASS THROUGH THESE, A PIECE OF MONEY MUST BE LAID IN THE HAND, UNDER THE PILLOW, OR BENEATH THE TONGUE OF THE CORPSE. IN THE NEIGHBORHOOD OF Fogaris, WHERE THE FAIRIES OR TOLL BARS ARE SUPPOSED TO AMOUNT TO TWENTY-FIVE, THE HAIR OF THE DEFUNCT IS DIVIDED INTO AS MANY PLATES, AND A PIECE OF MONEY SECURED IN EACH. Likewise, a small provision of needles, pins, thread, etc., are put into the coffin to enable the pilgrim to repair any damage his clothes may receive on the way. The mourning songs, called bosetti, usually performed by paid mourners, are directly addressed to the corpse and sung into his ear on either side. This is the last attempt made by the survivors to wake the dead man to life, by reminding him of all he is leaving, and urging him to to make a final effort to arouse his dormant faculties. The thought which underlies all these proceedings being that the dead man hears and sees all that goes on around him, and that it only requires the determined effort of a strong will, in order to restore elasticity to the stiffened limbs, and cause the torpid blood to flow again within the veins. Again she continues, In many places two openings corresponding to the ears of the deceased are cut out in the wood of the coffin to enable him to hear the songs of mourning, which are sung on either side of him as he is carried to the grave. The singing into the ears has passed into a proverb, and when the, and when the Romanian says, E a cantat la vecchia, he has sung into his ears, it is tantamount to saying that prayer and admonition have been used in vain. This pomana, or funeral feast, is invariably held after the funeral. For much of the peace of the defunct depends upon the strict observance of this ceremony. At this banquet all the favorite dishes of the dead man are served, and each guest receives a cake and a jug also a wax candle, in his memory. Similar Pomonas are repeated after a fortnight, six weeks, and on each anniversary for the next seven years. Also, whenever the defunct has appeared in dream to any member of the family, this likewise calls for another Pomona. And when these conditions are not exactly complied with, the soul thus neglected is apt to wander, complaining about the earth, and cannot find rest. These restless spirits, called Strigoi, are not malicious, but their appearance bodes no good, and may be regarded as omens of sickness or misfortune. More decidedly evil, however, is the vampire, or Nosferatu, in whom every Romanian peasant believes as firmly as he does in heaven or hell. Gerard continues still more. There are two sorts of vampires, living and dead. The living vampire is, in general, the illegitimate offspring of two illegitimate persons. But even a flawless pedigree will not insure anyone against the intrusion of a vampire into his family vault, since every person killed by a Nosferatu becomes likewise a vampire after death, and will continue to suck the blood of other innocent people till the spirit has been exorcised, either by opening the grave of the person suspected and driving a stake through the corpse, or firing a pistol shot into the coffin." In very obstinate cases, it is further recommended to cut off the head, and replace it in the coffin with the mouth filled with garlic, or to extract the heart and burn it, strewing the ashes over the grave. That such r- remedies are often resorted to, even in our enlightened days, is a well-attested fact, and there are probably few Romanian villages where such has not taken place than the memory of the inhabitants first cousin to the vampire, the long-exploded werewolf of the Germans, is here to be found, lingering yet under the name of the Prickolich, sometimes it is a dog instead of a wolf, whose form a man is taken either voluntarily or as a penance for his sins. In one of the villages, a story is still told, and believed, of such a man, who, driving home from church on Sunday with his wife, suddenly felt that the time for his transformation had come. He therefore gave over the reins to her, and stepped aside into the bushes where, murmuring the mystic formula, he turned three somersaults over a ditch. Soon after this, the woman, waiting in vain for her husband, was attacked by a furious dog, which rushed, barking, out of the bushes, and succeeded in biting her severely, as well as tearing her dress. When... An hour later, this woman reached home alone. She was met by her husband, who advanced smiling to meet her. But between his teeth, she caught sight of the shreds of her dress, which had been bitten out by the dog, and the horror of the discovery caused her to faint away. Another man used gravely to assert that for more than five years, he had gone about in the form of a wolf leading on a troop of these animals till a hunter, in striking off his head, restored him to his natural shape. A French traveller relates an instance of a harmless botanist, who, while collecting herbs on a hillside, in a crouching attitude, was observed by some peasants at a distance, and taken for a wolf. Before they had time to reach him, however, he had risen to his feet, and disclosed himself in the form of a man. But this, in the minds of the Romanians, who now regarded him as an aggravated case of wolf, was but additional motive for attacking him. They were quite sure that he must be a prickolich, for only such could change his shape in such an unaccountable manner. And in another minute they were all in full cry after the wretched victim of science, who might have fared badly indeed had he not appeared to gain a carriage on the high road before his pursuers came up. We do not require to go far for the explanation of the extraordinary tenacity of life of the werewolf legend in a country like Transylvania, where real wolves still abound. Every winter here brings fresh proof of the boldness and cunning of these terrible animals, whose attacks on flocks and farms are often conducted with a skill which would do honor to a human intellect. Sometimes a whole village is kept in trepidation for weeks together by some particularly audacious leader of a flock of wolves, to whom the peasants not unnaturally attribute a more than animal nature. And one may safely prophesy that so long as the real wolf continues to haunt the Transylvanian forest, so long will his specter brother survive in the minds of the inhabitants. The preceding passage is dripping with bias. Notice Gerard doesn't say which culture or which villages practice these beliefs. And you don't have to be very cynical to think the world is chock... The work, rather, is chock full of embellishment. But if you're Stoker reading this, your imagination is filled with vivid images of the undead. And how about the leader of the undead, Count Dracula? According to Frayling... Stoker, while in Whitby in northeast England, discovered a book in the town library called An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. The book was written by William Wilkinson in 1820 and talks about the real Dracula, Vlad Tepish, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler. Vlad III was a voivode, or nobleman, who ruled Wallachia, part of modern-day Romania, off and on over a 20-year period in the mid-1400s. And although Wallachia was a neighboring realm, Vlad was born in Transylvania to the house of Draculesti, the Order of the Dragon, and he defended his realm against Turkish invaders. And although he definitely earned his nickname the Impaler through his harsh tactics used on his enemies, Tapish was perhaps not unusual for noblemen of his age, and Frayling suggests he was well-liked by his own subjects. Vlad Tapish oversaw the building of Bran Castle near the border of Wallachia and Transylvania, and it's possible that this imposing edifice served as an inspiration for Dracula's castle. But unlike the name Dracula, which means devil in the Romanian language, the real-life Vlad wasn't any more of a devil than other 15th century warrior princes. Still, it's apparent Stoker used this historical figure as a jumping-off point for creating the fiendish vampire Count Dracula, But little did Stoker realize he was creating one of the most popular villains, other than maybe Darth Vader, of all time. And Dracula came to great popularity in part because of the 1931 movie Dracula starring Bela Lugosi as the Count. And Bela took his stage name of Lugosi, his real surname was Blasco, from his hometown of Lugos in modern day Romania. And Romania today is perfectly willing to accommodate tourists hoping to see the spooky realm of the Count. You can take Harker's journey through the town of Bistritz into the Borgo Pass, where he got into the mysterious carriage up to whisk him away to Dracula's castle. Now, any visitor to Transylvania will notice lush greenery. It wasn't called the land beyond the forest for nothing. And some impressive mountain terrains are there, but nothing quite as rugged and foreboding as what Stoker described. And if you take the mountain road to the place where Dracula's castle should be, you'll find exactly what you're looking for the Castle Dracula Hotel. But don't get too excited. It was built in the 1980s to uh, serve Dracula uh, tourists uh, who uh, expected to find something Dracula-related at the site described in the novel. And in uh, 2013, the Romanian Federation of Tourism and Service Employers um, released a press release that talks about welcoming Dracula-themed tourism. Transylvania can now finally become a tourism destination, internationally renowned, with the benefit not only to the tourism in the region, but to our economy in general. To be huge, the local authorities in six counties in Transylvania could develop, by using European funds, a regional project dubbed Dracula. Following a proposal of the mayor in Targu Mures, central Romania, the Dracula brand existed for a long time. We only need to exploit it and wrap it properly, and then sell it in a modern manner. So even now, Dracula still draws unsuspecting Jonathan Harker's into the wilds of Transylvania. But the tourism board certainly hopes you enjoy your stay considerably more than Stoker's protagonist did. Of course, Stoker never got to fully enjoy his work. He died in 1912 and was memorialized as a friend and employee of Henry Irving. And, oh by the way... They mentioned as an aside that he'd written 19 books. As for Stoker's Transylvania, it continues to symbolize any foreboding spooky place. The Simpsons brilliantly spoofed the Francis Ford Coppola film Bram Stoker's Dracula in one of its Treehouse of Horror Halloween specials. Homer's autocratic boss, Mr. Burns, plays the vampire in this silly send-up of the film. As they approach the castle, Homer tells his family, It sure was nice of Mr. Burns to invite us for a midnight dinner at his country house in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, of course, means Penn's Woods, but some people have chosen to focus on the "Vania" part of the name. There's a popular video game series about a vampire hunter and his descendants, and it's called Castlevania. No matter what you call it, we all know what Dracula's castle is supposed to look like. At least we think we do, and we have Bram Stoker to thank for that. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Setting the Scene podcast. Next time, we'll journey to, of all the places and all the gin joints in all the world, North Africa, to the famous setting of a movie from 1942. Until then, thanks for listening.